Ms. Anna Rakeon BL, and on behalf of Irish League News, I'd like to welcome you all to this, our second free webinar. Um, today is on the issue of data protection in the uh, post-pandemic world, and uh, we're delighted to have a number of uh, panellists today to speak to us on that uh, issue. Just uh, as a starter, I'd like to encourage you all to submit uh, questions through the Q&A button that will be available on your uh, screen. And then at the end of the uh, webinar, we'd be delighted if you could uh, fill out the uh, post-webinar survey that you will automatically be sent. In addition, just uh, if you're interested um, in tweeting about today's event, if you could tweet with the hashtag, hashtag #ILNWebinar. So our first guest that I'd like to welcome is Simon McGar, is a data protection specialist at McGar Solicitors and the director of Data Compliance Europe. He represented Digital Rights Ireland in the Schrems 1 case, and we're delighted to have him to explain and discuss the recent Schrems 2 ruling and its implications. Thank for joining us, Simon. Um, one of the difficulties when you're asked to talk about something that's been going on for so long is knowing how far back do you begin? I mean, you know, do we start with the original ancient Olympics? Do we move forward a little bit sooner? So I think rather than trying to rehash what happened in Schrems 1, just the headlines... Uh, what happened in uh, in the first one was that the safe harbour, which was a dis basically a decision made by the European Commission to accept a certain set of assurances made by the United States government about the protection of European data, if certain things were done by sign uh, by parties who signed up to a set of agreements, uh, as being acceptable for the purposes of, of protecting European uh, data. And therefore, they said that there was an adequacy decision if you use the safe harbour agreement. Uh, that went in Trems 1 to the Court of Justice, who um, struck it down. Um, it should be perhaps noted that uh, the original request made by the plaintiff in the Trems 1 case, Mr. Trems, was not in relation to the question of whether or not the safe harbour agreement was legitimate initially. He was looking for a judicial review of a refusal to consider his, um, his claim. But the court, when it gets hold of an important question, doesn't like to let it go. And, and that's going to be useful for, the, for understanding uh, this Schrems 2 decision, because the court has a set of policy positions. And it's worth, it's worth thinking about those before we go on. The, the European Court of Justice has taken up, I think it's fair to say, uh, data protection as one of its signature policy uh, creation methods. It's going to go and set out a framework for data protection which is going to be applied in Europe and which Europe expects to be applied elsewhere using its regulatory soft powers if you want to have access to the easiest trade uh, relationship with the, United, with the EU. So, the court sets out what it is that the charter says. It interprets the charter. That the charter was incorporated into the basic law of the European Union following the Treaty of Lisbon. And, uh, and the charter was initially, in the very first of these cases, which I was involved in, the Digital Rights Ireland the, uh, case, the um, uh, commission argued that the charter should not have the same force of judiciability that the rest of the treaty should have, that it was merely a statement of... Um, fond wishes and, uh, and aspirations. Um, and the, uh, the Court of Justice completely rejected that idea, making the Charter a critical live document for anybody who's trying to interpret European law or indeed domestic law where it overlaps with European law. 
So, um, so the Schrems was the follow-on from that position. If we are to have human rights at the heart of European law, then obviously it must be actionable. And the, when the court saw that there was a human rights element to be addressed, it took that opportunity and, uh, uh, and it, it moved to, to say, sorry, we don't think that given the basis of the information that's before the court at the moment, and amongst the other things that was before the court at that time was the entirety of the Snowden archive, which had been released at that time, uh, given the entirety of what was known to the court, it decided that it wasn't happy to continue to endorse the commission's view that the transfers were lawful because they were going to be sufficiently protected. So the, uh, the Data Protection Commission was told to go and investigate this matter. Um, it did. And it brought the uh, case as the plaintiff in the Schrems 2 case. So Mr. Schrems is not actually the plaintiff this time. It's the Data Protection Commissioner who is the, uh, or Commission, who is the plaintiff in this most recent case. And here the, the Commission uh, had concerns about the operation of standard contract clauses, which had been the other uh, element that Mr. Schrems had complained about. Of course, uh, since then, they had replaced the, the safe harbor uh, system with what was known as the privacy shield, which you might argue was safe harbor wearing a false mustache because it was in effect the same kind of agreement. And again, these aren't um, treaties between the EU and the US. What happens is, is that the US writes some reassuring letters to the commission and the commission makes its decision based on the information provided to it. But that's a, it's a unilateral commission decision. So uh, uh, there was an agreement that um, Privacy Shield, unfortunately, also didn't meet the, meet the, come up to the mark, and the court made that decision. And really now, we're only a couple of weeks after that, and industry is wrestling with the consequences of that, and that's really where I wanted. I didn't want to do the entirety of the Olympics, just the most recent important parts, because the consequences of that decision, there are immediate practical consequences, and then there's long-term consequences as well that we're going to have to get used to. So to address the, um, the immediate consequences, the court found that, first of all, Privacy Shield was not up to the job, and it was not going to accept that it was the basis of a legal transfer of data to the United States. That means that every company who is using Privacy Shield as that basis immediately has to switch because otherwise every piece of data being processed is being processed legally. And it would be horrendous data breach if that were to be the case. So um, the other thing that it, it found was a set of standards that need to be applied in relation to the, some of the other legal bases for transferring data, primarily uh, the standard contractual clauses, which is the major um, other method by which you can transfer data to the United States, but also is used for transferring data to lots of jurisdictions all around the world, to India for the purposes of offshoring, to Australia, to anywhere else around the world that you might think, well, there isn't an adequacy decision in respect of that country. So there are some countries who are kind of have had their entire system examined by the commission and who have been found adequate. So that's a, that's a list like Japan, uh, Israel, Canada, these are countries where you can say, if I'm sending the data there, it, it, it will be safely treated because of the, uh, the, the legal um, framework for that country. In other, other countries, you need to set up a system where you say, well, look, here's a private agreement, the standard contractual clauses, which will allow you to transfer the data from one party to the contract to the other party to the contract. And they both promise to do a set of things 
And that set of things is literally published on the uh, European Commission website. You can download the standard contractual clauses. If you mess with them, take bits out. They're no longer standard. So they come as a lump. You can add things to them, of course, but you can't subtract. And you, uh, you're in the position of saying, well, they've signed up to standard contractual clauses. So I have the reassurance of knowing they've promised to do all the things the commission have said must be done. Now, after the decision in the Schrems 2 case of three weeks ago now, we've had an additional layer of um, interpretation of those contracts. So there was, a, there was a project underway by the commission, I think perhaps with one eye to the, con to the standard contractual clauses potentially being struck down, where the commission was working on a new updated set of standard contractual clauses to take into account all of the uh, case law of the last couple of years plus other, other reassurances. However, um, what we've actually seen is that the court didn't strike down standard contractual clauses. It simply said, well, in order to comply with these contractual clauses, which are valid and remain valid, we're going to need both parties to really come up to the mark on what they have promised. So one of the things is that if you're sending data to a third party country, the third party uh, entity, the creature who is receiving them and is, the, uh, is, is signing on to the standard contractual clauses, and we call them the data processor for, the, for ease of reference. The data processor who receives this data in the, uh, in the third country, they have, to, they have a, a duty to say, I'm sorry, I've looked at the way that my laws work here in this country, and I see now that I can't actually promise the things that are in the standard contractual clauses because there are laws here which would prevent me from uh, successfully relying on those clauses. In, you know, frequently there would be laws that would say, on the grounds of XYZ, we must have access to that data, we're the state, but also there's a gagging clause where you can't tell anybody that this has happened. And, um, and in, in the event of, for example, there's a series of laws around the uh, FISA Act, in the United States, which has been specifically examined now twice by the Court of Justice. And the Court of Justice has made it very clear that it thinks that there are certain provisions that are incompatible with, uh, with a safe transfer of data and which would render companies who are subject to that act, and that's not all companies in the United States, but companies who are subject to that act, it would render it impossible for them to rely on standard contractual clauses. Now, not only do the recipients have a duty to put their hands up and say, look, we've looked into the matter and it turns out we can't sign the standard contractual clauses because of our local jurisdictional uh, duties. You know, the law that we work under would not allow us to tell you things that when you need to be told in a way which are in the contract. But equally, there's a requirement for the people sending the data controller to send the information to the other side. And before you send it, which we'll discuss in a second. Before you send it, you're meant to say, look, recipient, here's a set of queries that I really think you ought to answer so that I can do my own analysis of your own domestic uh, legislative framework. And so that once I've analyzed it, I can come to my own independent decision of whether you're okay or not. This is because it's not acceptable, and the court has said this, to rely on the, the recipient company saying, it's fine, don't worry, you're grand. Both parties are responsible under the, uh, the standard contractual clauses to, to say, to do their own independent assessment of that jurisdiction, the recipient jurisdiction, and to decide, yes, this is okay or no, it isn't. Now, 
then the question uh, comes, uh, and I said there, the, the court has said it should happen before it's transferred. And yes, of course, it should happen before it's transferred. But seeing as there were already transfers going on when the decision was made, and although the court was interpreting the terms of the contract as they stood and has not changed the terms of the standard contractual clauses, the consequence is that we now have a bunch of new compliance duties, which we as legal advisors, if I'm wearing my legal advisor hat, or as DPOs, when I'm wearing my DPO hat, I do both, um, that as a DPO, you have to say to your company, it, we actually have to go through our data uh, register of processing activities. We have to identify those areas where we are sending data outside of the EU, which hopefully a good ROPA will have already there. And then you look through those and you identify the ones that are sending them to countries that are not already covered by an adequacy decision. And then you find the ones that are covered by privacy shield or by standard contractual clauses or binding contractual uh, terms. And you say, I'd better write to these people and do this compliance step immediately. And so one of the things that I was hoping to be able to, and I think we will get to it, is that I would just deal with that question of the practicalities of what it is. I'm looking at this to make sure, yeah, we're doing okay. Uh, we're doing uh, uh, the practicalities of what you would need to say. So there are two kinds of creature. There's the creature which up until now was telling you that it was relying upon the privacy shield for the purposes of covering transfers between the EU and the US. And that creature needs to be written to and says, I recognize, of course, that you no longer rely on the privacy shield. Please tell me what it is that you do rely on now so that I can take the necessary steps to go through the compliance uh, process in respect of that uh, uh, legal term, legal basis. That's nice because it's nice and neat. Uh, alternatively, you write to them and you say, hello there, um, tell me about your jurisdiction. Here are my um, set of extremely complicated questions which covers your how, whether or not your jurisdiction is one which I can rely upon for the purposes of, of sending data using either standard contractual clauses or another transfer method. Now, are these the only transfer methods that are available? No, there are others. The court specifically mentioned them. You're into the... the I was going to say the long grass, but to be honest, it's more like a bog because the dangerous at every step. If you, for example, decide you're going to rely on consent, valid legal consent in order to send that data over, you realize that you're now into the thing of proving that it's valid. You now need to demonstrate that it was informed consent. You need to be able to not only tell the people, but show that they understood it before they gave their consent for the transfers that you're doing, the processing that's happening it's actually very difficult. Now, the gold standard, of course, if you can manage it, because nothing's better than the person saying, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to happen with my data. Brilliant. It's gone to the United States and it's been processed exactly as I intended and wanted and said I wanted it to be done. And it has. That's a, why would I complain? But the problem is that by and large, that's hard to do. You're hard, it's difficult to get there. So, um, so what we're seeing now is the first wave of questions have gone out. And we're seeing some answers coming back. So, for example, Google has notified uh, uh, its data controllers who are using it as a processor that it's no longer relying upon Privacy Shield and it has moved to standard contractual clauses. But we haven't yet got the answers back to the questions on tell us about your standard contractual clauses underlying jurisdiction. We're still waiting for that exciting second step. So, um, so we've heard from that. We have, I have seen personally, uh, answers from household name companies, which would make your hair stand on end, 
So I don't think that we are, we're getting necessarily the con- most considered of opinions at the moment. Um, I, I've seen one household name company which has come back and its argument is, well, because it's only been struck down in the, in the EU, but it wasn't struck down in the US and they still say it's fine, we're still relying on privacy shield. Now, that's an unhappy position if you're the person who's relying on them because they're taking your data, shunting it to the US, and you're responsible for that transfer, not you know them as well, but you are primarily responsible as the data controller. So, um, so really, this is the start of a very significant rearrangement. I mean, personally, it seems to me like the necessary next step that we're going to see is a significant increase in data localization. It just becomes incredibly difficult to transfer data. And so to make it easier, we just won't transfer the data wherever we can avoid it. And so I can expect that we're going to see a large number of announcements over the next 18 months of data centers being opened hither and thither across the EU not in Britain, of course, but inside the EU. Um, And I saw a data center being announced, 500 million data center announced for TikTok uh, in Ireland only this morning. And I suspect that's the first of many that we're going to see. And there'll probably be additional ones because data that's currently being stored and processed in the United States using the United States infrastructure, it's likely to be easier from a legal point of view to duplicate that structure than it is to change the underlying jurisdictional controls Uh, in the United States. And that's only one of the jurisdictions that we're going to have to look at. And it's the one that all the focus has been on. But of course, there still is a duty to examine India, um, uh, 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 other other states where data is sent, but which are not uh, already the subject of an adequacy decision. Now, I'm mindful that there was 50 minutes and I think we've managed it. Okay, 70 minutes. I give myself the, 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 the advantage. Perfect. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, just for anyone who might have logged in uh, late, there's a, a Q&A button. Uh, there'll be a Q&A session at the end uh, for all panellists. But if you have any questions, you can put it uh, at Q&A, which would be at the bottom of your screen. So our next guest is William McLaughlin, who is a practicing barrister focusing on data protection, employment, judicial review and planning law. And he's the founder of Argent Business Consultants, uh, and he's currently working on some of the biggest data breach uh, claims in Ireland. So I'd like to welcome uh, William. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. I'll try and keep it to 10 minutes. Um, basically, the big thing, and what Simon's touching on there, I'm not going to go into it, but the Privacy Shield, uh, you hit the nail on the head with it's up to uh, the parties to prove consent, prove effectively uh, that they're complying with GDPR. And as Article 5.2 says, it's up to the data controller uh, to show compliance with Article 5.1, the principles of data protection. Now, from a, a practical procedural point of view, that's incredibly difficult. From a litigation point of view, when you're the, you know, the plaintiff, that's fantastic. It kind of pushes uh, a, a certain amount of onus onto the defendant, the data controller. Now, I'm not saying it's a reverse burden of proof. This hasn't been examined yet before the courts, but I would suggest it actually puts an onus on the defendant, anybody uh, defending against a data protection action or a breach of GDPR to show compliance. Uh, and that's a very difficult thing to do, uh, especially when it's coming to informed consent. Now, the whole purpose of today was to talk about uh, kind of how GDPR came into effect and uh, nowadays leading into uh, COVID-19. But my biggest take on all this is that since GDPR came into effect, data subjects have become increasingly aware 
of their rights as data subjects and not just becoming aware of it, but also taking action. There's more and more complaints to the Data Protection Commission. There's more and more litigation happening before the circuit court. Uh, because if you're taking a data protection act action under the data protection act there, there's only two venues for you there's the circuit court the high court and even for a very relatively minor breach uh, it specifically states it has to be the circuit court so there's an issue related to costs as well in that um the reason why i'm saying it's becoming more uh, the data subjects have become more and more uh learners for want of a better phrase because they're more and more vocal about it you'll see a lot more complaints in the media about it you'll see a lot more complaints to data protection commission and it's not just in terms of civil complaints as we know the data protection commissioner can investigate civil complaints but they can also investigate criminal complaints and prosecute in the district court and criminal in the civil court for uh, criminal breaches of data protection act and this area hasn't really been dealt with under a data protection act 2018 because in my view there's a bit of a gap here that if you have uh, a data protection um, commissioner investigating criminal aspects of Data Protection Act. We'll say hypothetically, uh, you work for a company and you, for whatever reason, decide to take medical files and hand them out in O'Connell Street, left, right and centre. Now, we can all agree that's an egregious breach of data protection and you would fully be prosecuted for that and you'd probably be prosecuted in the district court or circuit court. Here's the thing, if somebody helped you with that, well, we're getting into incohate offences such as accomplice, conspiracy, and the Data Protection Act is silent on all that. And normally, traditionally, anything to do with incohate offences is the DPP or the Gardaí, the, the, the director of, sorry, the only people who can prosecute for incohate, uh, sorry, the only people who can investigate the Gardaí for incohate offences and the only people who can prosecute are the DPP. Whereas with the Data Protection Act, if you do it on your own and you breach it yourself, uh, you can be prosecuted under the Data Protection Act by the Data Protection Commissioner. But anybody who helps you, well, could they be prosecuted under the Data Protection Act or are they prosecuted by the Gardaí? Or sorry, DPP and investiga investigated by the Gardaí. There's this whole area that we just simply don't know. And it's a bit of a mess at the moment. Now, uh, that is one of the big, big areas that uh, people, I I'm finding through anecdotal evidence for people coming to me looking for advice. And th there's an element of criminality here. They're fully entitled to make a, a criminal complaint if they wish. However, from a, a legal perspective, I normally deal with data protection actions. and there's a, for those of you who don't know, data protection action is effectively a, a action for some sort of remedy, usually damages, uh, maybe even injunctive relief to prevent any further breaches of GDPR. Uh, so you look at, so the plaintiff is looking for something in response to a, a data breach of some description or some illegal or unauthorized processing of personal data. Now, this also raises a big thing because if you're on the, the defense side of a data protection action, Generally speaking, this is a huge generalization, uh, there is an onus on, under Data Protection Act GDPR to actually notify data subjects of a data breach. You have to. And the criteria by Data Protection Commission is if there is a um, severe, um, sorry, if there's a high risk to the rights and freedoms of data subjects. So you have to, otherwise it's an offense. Uh, but one second, if you as a defendant, for want of a better phrase, or you as somebody who could be open to criminal investigation for breach of Data Protection Act, if you're forced or compelled by legislation to actually inform uh, the data subject or even the, the alleged victim in this case, is that not a breach to right to privacy, right um, not to incriminate yourself, your right to silence? These are other areas where it's bleeding in to constitutional human rights, not just of data subjects, but on the flip side of data controllers and data processors. And again, this area hasn't been investigated. In fact, it's been very little 
uh, review or peer review on this area. There's been very little judicial notice of it. And I think that's an area where it's going to be developing. Hold on a second. If I have to inform the data subject that I've effectively committed a breach on Data Protection Act and I could be open to criminal investigation or prosecution, isn't that a breach of my right to privacy? I say right to silence. Um, so that whole area is going to be developed. Um, not only do you see more and more complaints to Data Protection Commissioner, in my view, and this is again my interpretation, I see this whole area blowing up into new personal injuries. And I've been saying this for years that you're going to see ads on telly or on, on a billboard somewhere, especially I think in the UK, it's already happening. You know, did Facebook breach your data? Call my toll free number now, no in, no fee. That's where it's all going. Um, the reason being is look at this from a solicitor's perspective. If you're um, going to a solicitor and you've got notification from a data uh, controller going, hello, I have this letter. It says that my rights, my, my data uh, breach notification said they had a data breach. Here's what happened. And you give this to a solicitor, well, that's the evidence. That's the proofs they need. Did you have a data breach? Yes, I was told I had a data breach. What's the damage? Well, you know, I'm upset, I'm distressed. Whatever is on the letter can, you know, be the proofs required. So there's a huge element of, from a solicitor's point of view, it's, and again, I'm using this very loosely, so this is my interpretation. But from a solicitor's point of view, there is a, a huge uh, area there, a possible new revenue stream without as much work as an atypical personal injury case, without as much expert reports, without as much um, paperwork to go through. Now, again, I, I did say that was a generalization. Um, the reason I'm saying this is because the, from a data perspective, uh, data um, um, litigation, data protection action litigation, the damages involved, and this is where people sometimes ask me, one second, I didn't really have any damages involved. Well, if you know damages, that's fine, you don't have a case. Um, but GDPR and Data Protection Act specifies that um, your damages are now both material and non-material damages. Now, before GDPR and Data Protection Act, under the old 1988-2003 Data Protection Act, uh, you had to prove material damage and other some, some form of tangible, quantifiable damage that you could actually point to, you could calculate, uh, or you could get an expert report saying this is the damage cause. So it had to be something. Um, now, there's loads of case law on that, and there is a, there is a, a few dissenting views that um, regardless of whether or not you had non-material damage or upset distress, you should be entitled to something in the old legislation, and I'd be of the view that you are. However, under the new legislation, GDPR and Data Protection Act 2018, you're entitled to material and non-material damage. Um, so you're entitled to recover for pain, suffering, distress. And what you'll find is, and this is in practice, and it's, again, it's anecdotal, it's just my interpretation of what's happening, is that when somebody has a massive data breach and they write out to people, a lot of people look at this and say, you've written out to me and I'm looking at it, and they will take, um, what, obviously, what's on the letter, but they'll take the whole principle of the matter and they'll look at, well, do I like this company or not? Do I want to have a go with them or not? And there's a lot of that coming into effect. For example, one of the very first data breaches in Ireland was Harvey Norman. It happened, like, I think a few days after um, GDPR came into effect. It was at the end of May 2018. And it was reported in the papers. But they handled it perfectly. Uh, when it happened, I don't know, I'm just, this is from what I read in the paper, it was reported in the Irish Times and the, the Independent and uh, Irish uh, Evening Herald, that when it happened, they actually took a proactive response, contacted people directly and said, look, we had a data breach, we're dealing with this. Uh, this is what happened. This is how we're going to prevent it occurring again. This is the likelihood of damage to you. This is what we're going to do to help resolve it. And according to, to from what I'm aware of, there was no legal action taken. Again, this is just what I'm aware of. What I read the papers, it was handled perfectly. It was a very good proactive response. 
Whereas if you look at some of the other big data breaches that have happened, uh, we'll say one that happened uh, September, August last year, where Aircom, Air, uh, somebody left a laptop um, out in the public, it was stolen, it had access to loads of files on it. Um, a lot of people aren't too happy with the fact that their personal data was on a laptop in public that was stolen. For that, there's more of the principle of the matter, kind of going, I'm not terribly impressed with what you did with this. Um, Ticketmaster, they had a data breach, and I, I think it's fair to say a lot of people just simply don't like Ticketmaster. Uh, they, they don't have the best uh, PR department, especially if you've been hanging on for hours trying to get a ticket as soon as they come online, and within 30 seconds they're all gone, and you've got to spend double the price to rebuy a ticket from an authorized reseller. I, you get the pressure, you get the point. Um, so a lot of people don't particularly like Ticketmaster because they generally haven't had the best experience with them. So when people got notification that uh, there was a data breach for Ticketmaster, I think it was on around the 20th of uh, July 2018, um, then people were more likely to complain about it because they didn't like the company. They didn't like their experience with them. They're not terribly impressed with them. So they're more likely to take action against them. And you'll find this as breaches go ahead. How organizations deal with them is a big thing. If they take a proactive response, they're less likely uh, to, to get people annoyed or angry about it. And to the PR publicity of the company, if, they weather, if they're going to... Um, like the company, they're not going to be as angry and upset. They're less likely to, to um, take action against them. One of the big ones at the moment that was reported in the papers of the last few weeks was EBS. Uh, they, they basically wrote to around 16,000 customers saying, um, we, we uh, reported, we inadvertently, we had a mistake, and that's the phrase used on your mortgage. We reported you to the Irish Credit Bureau as being in arrears when you weren't. Sorry. But that was it. They didn't really go into much more detail. So there's been a lot of things in the papers about that. Uh, the same with the public service cards. You've probably seen the big hokey-cokey with the service cards where we're processing your data in accordance with GDPR. Biometric data, we're not. They keep doing this, changing their policy back and forth. Um, there's data protection action starting on that. But the point being is if organizations deal with them properly, take a proactive response and effectively deal with it from a PR perspective and... Um, help customers or help clients get through it, they're less likely than uh, not to actually be the subject of data protection action. So point to the moral of the story is to work with people through the data breach to take it. Um, and all this is just leading up to where we're going with this. And like I said, I see this turning into new personal injuries where you're going to see organizations taking on uh, data protection actions and no win, no fee. Now, could you imagine, imagine if Facebook, hypothetically, tomorrow Facebook, uh, data protection mission rules that Facebook was a breach of, we'll just say, whatever, three points of GDPR. All of a sudden, every solicitor in this country is going to be looking at it going, oh, how can I do that? It's a ruling. It's already been ruled by Data Protection Commissioner. They're not appealing it. Therefore, it's already been decided. We're just going for damages. So that's the point of this. Uh, thank you very much for having me. That's great. Thanks very much, William. Our next guest is Paul Tweed, who is one of Ireland's most prominent uh, defamation lawyers. He's well known for representing A-list celebrities, uh, politicians, newspapers, and publishers. He's a partner at Gately Tweed, and his recent call for great regulation of the social media giants was featured in the Irish Times. We're very pleased to, to have him today to discuss that in a little bit more detail. Thanks, Paul. Uh, I think you're, uh, you're stunned on uh, mute. Is that us now? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Uh, apologies. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, so look, uh, I'm not going to try to go into uh, the law uh, too much here. Simon and William have done a first class job there and uh, 
are able to express and articulate the law far more effectively than I can. I'm just going to concentrate, if I may, on my practical experience in trying to deal with the social media giants uh, in terms of uh, data protection and, and also privacy and defamation, which uh, tend to overlap in my world. Um, I mean, just to give you one example of that, um, we, 10 years ago, if uh, a child's photograph was published uh, online or by one of the, the national newspapers, we would tend to bring a privacy case. Uh, now, the much more effective means of doing it is to bring a, a breach of data case. In other words, uh, concentrate on a misuse of the child's data uh, that's formatted in the photograph that's taken. And we have found this to be very, very effective indeed uh, and much more um, efficient in terms of getting the uh, offender to either take down the photograph, uh, agree to pixelate, and more importantly, undertake uh, not to republish in the future. Um, over the past number of weeks, uh, I have been attempting to engage with both the Irish and the British governments to try and see if we can get some form of government action to regulate Facebook, Twitter, Google, uh, and the others, uh, and to try and make them accountable in the same way that the traditional media is accountable. Uh, one of the, the, the first lines of defense we get from Facebook, if we're writing to them, is they immediately uh, try to hide behind the e-commerce directive, which uh, was brought into force uh, years uh, before the current situation of dominance uh, by Facebook uh, and Google uh, in, in, the, in the global world. And basically, they are arguing that they are protected, that they are just simply a facilitator uh, for online communications, and that they are entitled to full protection. They're not responsible for what they channel out there. They also uh, bring out their, their uh, long uh, used and established uh, argument that they are merely a platform rather than a publisher. And uh, they say that, you know, we're different from the mainstream media. Uh, you know, you can't touch us. We're just there. People use us uh, as a means of disseminating whatever material information they want to send out there. Yet, Facebook, in particular, are taking all the advertising from the mainstream media. They are taking their investigation reports that the, the traditional media are having to pay journalists uh, to investigate. They're not paying for it. They're getting all the benefits, and yet they're not uh, responsible. They say, I disagree with that, needless to say, but they're not responsible under uh, the defamation laws that apply to the newspapers in, in this country and, and elsewhere. Uh, this, it's a ridiculous situation. Uh, I mean, I've often quoted the uh, analogy of if a newspaper publishes a reader's letter, they are responsible for any defamatory material or breach of data that may be contained in that letter. So what is the difference between a posting on Facebook or a tweet compared to that reader's letter? And why should uh, Facebook, Google at all, not be accountable in the same way. Likewise, uh, the social media giants are not accountable to the Press Council in Ireland, and there is no similar regulatory body in England, such as Ipso or Ofcom. They believe that they are above all that. So it's a ridiculous situation, but I wouldn't hold your breath uh, on getting any action 
minorly Irish or British government in the near future. Uh, I mean, the silence has been deafening in terms of my engagement with them. Uh, as to say it has been disappointment, disappointing would be uh, probably one of the greatest understatements that I've ever come out with, and I've come out with many. Uh, and so it's a problem that we're faced with. Now, so far as the, uh, the protection of uh, users' data is concerned, quite interesting, in 2018, uh, there was an immediate run for cover by Facebook, where they shifted all their African uh, and other non-European data out to what they perceived to be the safe haven of the United States. Uh, I've convinced myself it's nothing to do with the fact that we happened to be on the attack against them for clients from uh, the likes of Zambia, Djibouti, Egypt, and Algeria. And I'm sure it was a pure coincidence uh, that uh, they decided to, to uh, make a jump over the Atlantic just at that particular time. But this is a common problem that we are facing. You know, we, if we are dealing with uh, the Irish Independent, the Irish Times, uh, Sunday Times, any of the, the traditional media, you know, they will engage with us. They're not a pushover. They, they, you know, they will decide whether or not to hold our ground, but they will know that they are accountable under the law. And that is one of the reasons that, in my opinion, uh, the Irish and the, the British media are among the finest and the most credible in the world, simply because they have got this check on top of them from the defamation laws, data protection laws. They are all, they pay, they give cognizance to them, and they're deeply conscious that if they don't play ball, that they are going to land up, they're going to end up in the courts. This is not the case with our friends at Facebook and Twitter. I mean, I've got to a point now where my eyes just glaze over. Uh, when I get uh, correspondence or responses from them, when I do get responses from them, uh, we get, or when we get responses from their lawyers, it's the same uh, approach. I mean, it could almost be word processor, to be fair, to the solicitor involved. They're all first-class operators, and in fact, uh, Facebook and Twitter, etc., have the one thing they've done right, uh, they've got top-class lawyers uh, to act for them. But what we need here is, you know, government intervention. We, uh, at the moment, uh, and I was just, for this, the purpose of this webinar, I was just refreshing my mind on the sort of penalty that the data commissioner can impose. Uh, GDPR sets uh, a fines of up to 10 million euros, or in the case of an undertaking or corporation, up to 2% of its global turnover. But the reality, even that, is not really a deterrent to uh, an organization like Facebook where they've managed to, uh, their share price anyway, has managed to sustain an onslaught over the past couple of weeks where major uh, blue chip corporations have been withdrawing their advertising and it would have brought most major blue chip corporations to their knees. But uh, surprise, surprise, their share price, because of the, the vast wealth of these companies, their share price has remained largely uh, unaffected. So therefore, like the, the fines that have been imposed by the data commissioner to date, and, you know, and this is right across the board, this is not directed just at Ireland, I mean, England as well, but you know, even the, uh, the, uh, the fine of um, 500,000 imposed after the Cambridge uh, analytical scandal, uh, you know, that sounds like a lot. It's nothing, absolutely nothing uh, to Facebook. 
and the subsequent fine of a million that the Italian authorities imposed. Again, absolutely nothing, no deterrent whatsoever. Uh, and while, you know, 2% of turnover, if it was ever imposed, might make them think twice, the reality is they are adopting a policy right across the board, whether they're facing a data breach, whether they're facing a potential libel, whether they're facing a breach of privacy, they will look for whatever protection they can get in, in legislation that's already there, or alternatively, they will look for loopholes in the law to protect themselves. And most normal people, the ordinary man in the street, cannot afford, even if he does understand his rights, cannot afford to take, take them on. And, and this, this is something that is obviously known to these giants. The other side of the coin, the Irish government, understandably, do not want to offend major employers, companies that are, as I understand the position, although I, may st I still need to be convinced, are bringing significant revenue into this country, they do not want to scare them away. Again, I can understand that. I can also understand that Facebook, Twitter and Google are also a source of good. They provide a fantastic service for many people, uh, particularly in the lockdown situation we're in. They've been an absolute godsend and we've got to acknowledge that fact. But the same point that I have made over the last four decades in relation to the traditional media applies equally to social media, where they, if they are not accountable, if they are not properly regulated, their credibility goes down the tube. They are encouraging and allowing all sorts of harm, not only to, to people, not only to their reputations, but to a scenario where society takes on a new norm, whereby they cannot, they're not in a position where they can trust what they are reading or seeing on social media. Furthermore, against that background, what is happening to our data? I mean, recently a client approached me and I must say I'm quite thick. I mean, my 12 year old knows far more about what goes on on social media than I can ever hope to know. But whenever you agree to cookies, for instance, it's quite alarming if you really analyze and understand what you're agreeing to in terms of the extraction of your data. I mean, there are dozens of aspects of data that by your consent in accepting cookies, 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 sorry, maybe cookies is a better word, is being extracted from you. Now, somebody with my limited intellect can't fully understand it, but my, one of my clients is, is much more experienced an expert in these views, and he was absolutely horrified when he drilled in uh, to see what Google and uh, the likes are able to extract by consent. I mean, whenever I, somebody asks me to accept cookies, I mean, for years I've just been going yes, just for the sake of getting that banner off my screen so that I can get in quickly to whatever I want to access. But in doing that, I am actually giving away a significant amount of my personal rights, which are gone. That's it, you know, they're finished once, once you've, you've done that. The other aspect, and the much more serious aspect, which I think will have to be addressed, and my great concern again, is that when you hear 
whether it is the data commissioner's office, which we've got here, or whether it is government, that there's a great uh, line that they all come out with. They're running a consultation period. They are, if you have anything, any issues that you're putting, we're going to put that out to consultation. Now that to me is the land that time forgot. This situation is so urgent. It is not, we don't have the luxury of it. We raised an issue uh, with, uh, the, uh, with the office there quite recently for school where there was a situation of under 16 year olds exchanging data uh, on Instagram, I think it was. And you know, there were, there were issues that my lawyers raised that you know, I would have thought would have been jumped on immediately. But what the net result of our complaints, both to Facebook uh, and to the commissioner's office has been, look, we're putting that out to consultation. Uh, that's something that you know, we're looking at, something that you know, we, will be, we will be coming back on in due course. If in my world, you do not have the luxury of time. I mean, I always sort of think the quaint days of the 1980s and 1990s where we had nine to five jobs, you know, I just didn't realize I was living in those days. I mean, we're living in an era where a minute is the equivalent of the old day. And all these things are happening while government are, you know, clicking their heels, while they are consulting, while they are considering how to reform the situation while not offending or coming up against those giants. These only are now maybe half a dozen of them that are effectively have a major control on the economy and the administration of the system, and more importantly, uh, have got a massive influence on elections and the, the status and standard and standing of governments worldwide. I don't expect to see anything happening anytime soon. So where are we? Where are we left? Obviously, I don't envy the job of the Irish Data Commissioner. Commissioner, to be fair to her, it's, uh, it's certainly one job uh, I won't be applying for anytime soon. But if what is it up to society to rebel, or do we stand back and wait for the corporations to be embarrassed, to withdraw more than their advertising, to take a proactive stance against social media, or is it up to individual lawyers? who have to basically take a stand on behalf of clients who have got the guts and determination to see things through against an opposition that have got a bottomless financial purse to be able to see off even the most aggressive and the most wealthy of plaintiffs. It is a problem of our times. I personally don't have answers for it, but I'm certainly going to do my utmost to find them. Thank you. I hope I haven't taken up too much time there. Thanks very much for that, Paul. Our final panellist is Olga Cronin, who is the Policy Officer on the Shared Information Rights Programme of the ICCL, which is the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, and the International Network of Civil Liberties Organisations. So she has led ICCL's work on the COVID-19 contact tracing app, as well as social welfare inspections at Irish airports. And so she'll be speaking to us today on the Irish Government's data protection record. Andrew. Um, hello everyone and thank you very much to everyone at Irish Legal News for having me here today. Um, so yeah, so in terms of the Irish government's record when it comes to data protection, um, I would like to talk about two or three specific things. 
um, the HSE app, the public services card, and yeah, if we have time, the, the recent and as yet unresolved controversy surrounding the gathering of data by social welfare inspectors at the airports and ports. Um, in terms of the HSE app, so the state's plans to launch this app first emerged via media reports in March. We knew that it was going to be a Bluetooth-based um, voluntary app. But not long after, a group of data protection and legal experts, including the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and Digital Rights Ireland, met to discuss this. Um, our initial concerns were several fold. At that point, it was unknown what the app would be specifically used for, what data would be collected, how it would be stored, with whom it would be shared, um, how long it would be in existence, and if it would be at all repurposed for any other purpose down the line. There was also no evidence to show that um, such apps were an effective means to curb the transmission of COVID-19. Um, we don't believe our concerns were groundless. So different types of surveillance tools have been deployed across the world as a consequence of COVID-19, while at the same time, people's movements have been restricted and extraordinary powers have been bestowed on police to enforce these restrictions. Some of these tools have, have put a lot of people's um, and populations' fundamental rights at serious risk. So for example, so in, let's say in the US, we've seen body temperature checks at workplaces, businesses, and other public venues. In Russia, in Moscow, police are monitoring people in quarantine and using facial recognition te technology cameras. Um, and if, if there's a breach of quarantine, you know, it could lead to a jail term. In Israel, the country's internal security service um, was given permission to use counterterrorism surveillance on COVID patients by tracking their phones. Um, in South Africa, the lockdown regulations gave the Director General of Health in South Africa the power to direct an electronic communication service provider to share information on individuals' location and movement through their phones. Um, in Hungary, the government outright suspended Articles 15 to 22 of GDPR in relation to the processing of per personal data as part of its, um, its emergency COVID-19 measures. So thankfully, you know, the US, oh, sorry, thankfully the HSC and the Department of Health um, COVID tracker app does not resemble any of these tools or, move or moves at all. Um, but the general global trend of normalizing surveillance during COVID requires, we believe, um, that we treat any new surveillance tool with serious caution because, well, emergency measures often outlast emergencies. Um, and we do have to ask ourselves what kind of new normal we want post-COVID. Um, to help engage with the HSE and the department, our group published a set of nine principles, which we believe must be adhered to um, when the government implements new technologies in order to ensure the technology aligns with legal and human rights requirements and protects our privacy. These principles would be, could be the basis for any new technology, it doesn't have to be the app. Um, some of our principles were adhered to, and on July the 2nd, we applauded the HSE and the department for uploading um, a substantial amount of information and um, the data protection impact assessment, which they didn't have to do, the source code and other documentation, including the data protection commissioner's review of the DPIA. We see that, we believe that that was a huge move by the state in terms of transparency and unquestionably the model for all future DPI processes by the state. However, we still had concerns and gave the app um, a C plus mark after we examined that documentation. I guess the thing about contact tracing apps is that there's no evidence to support the theory that they curb the transmission of COVID. Um, the Data Protection Commissioner has also said that, that the HSE departments claim that the, app, that the app can improve the speed and accuracy of manual contact tracing is speculative and unproven. Um, I know that the Minister for Health and others um, have recently made claims in the media that the app is working, but it's not entirely clear how they have come to this conclusion. 
um, they have given figures for the amount of people who have downloaded their keys or allowed their keys to be uploaded, but it's also not known how many people have tested positive after receiving close contact alerts. We understand that the information has not yet been released by the HSE, but it will be once sufficient data has been collected and we look forward to seeing that data. In terms of efficacy, um, we have evidence from Dr. Stephen Farrell and Professor Douglas Leith of Trinity College Dublin, whom we were very lucky to work with, that um, it's challenging for Bluetooth apps to discern whether contacts are closer or further than two meters away. Um, that app signals um, recorded between users that can vary depending on whether people have their phones in their bag or their pocket, if they're on a bus or a Lewis where metal reflects radio waves or how a person is standing next to another person. And um, they've also found that for Bluetooth apps using the Google Apple Exposure, Exposure excuse me, notification service, which the HSE does, HSE app does, both false positives and false negatives are unavoidable. In relation to false positives, the HSE and Department of Health state themselves and their DPIA that they would advise Lewis drivers who download the app to turn off the contact tracing element because, um, or in order to avoid getting such false positive notifications. Um, we also have concerns that the Google Apple API can affect the performance um, of the contact tracing element of the app by silently updating the app, the API rather, unbeknownst to users and as a consequence affect the app's false positive and false negative rate. But our concerns, our concerns surrounding the Google Apple exposure notification service um, upon which the HSE app essentially sits were heightened in recent weeks after Professor Leith and Dr. Farrell carried out what is understood to be the first privacy assessment of the Google Apple exposure um, notification service. When they looked at the apps in Germany, Italy, Switzerland, Austria, Denmark, Poland, Latvia and Ireland. So these are the Google Apple based apps, contact tracing apps. So they found that Google Play services, which is turned on by default on most Android phones, must be running on the phones of all Android users who wish to use these Google Apple based contact tracing apps. If Google Play services is switched off, then those apps will not work. Professor Leith and Dr. Farrell found that phones with Google Play services enabled, irrespective of whether you have one of these contact tracing apps on your phone or not, okay, sends highly sensitive personal data to Google servers every 20 minutes. And this potentially allows for IP address-based location tracking of the phone user. They found that where Android users um, turn Google Play services off, data is still collected, possibly in contravention of GDPR because there are questions about content and consent, data minimization, purpose limitation, storage limitation, etc. It's also not clear where these servers are located, which could also have a bearing on these concerns when you consider um, Simon's previous um, comments on the trends to judgment. Um, the data shared includes long-term unchangeable identifiers of the phone users, including their phone's IP address, the Wi-Fi MAC address, international mobile, equipment identity number, IMEI number, SIM serial number, phone number, and the Gmail address attached to the phone, as well as fine-grained data from other potential, from other potential um, sensitive apps, such as banking, dating, or health apps that a person has on their phone. So this is data that when considered together has the potential to draw a very detailed map of our lives and activities. It should be noted that in their studies, the two scientists acknowledged that they face something of an ethical quandary when they reported on their work because the apps were already deployed and in active use. And that if the apps are effective, which the jury is still out on, um, raising privacy concerns could cause people to stop using the apps and that they felt that could be a potential harm. 
However, they did decide that to conceal new knowledge on the privacy impact of these apps whose state con component, as in the HSE bit of the app, given that that's endured significant um, scrutiny, would be unethical. Um, ICCL believes that that scrutiny of Google and Apple's involvement is not only fair, despite that there should be scrutiny and that it, that would only be fair, but also necessary. Many people and Android users might say, what's the big deal? You know, we're used, this type of, we're used to this type of surveillance by tech giants. Um, but similar to what um, Paul has just said, you know, in the absence of any real information about the design of the Google Apple exposure notification service, Professor Leith and Dr. Farrell's study allows people to make a more informed choice when it comes to what information they want to impart to technology giants. Um, this is also a, a particularly unique situation because this is where governments and public health authorities are strongly encouraging their entire populations to use these apps and either knowingly or unknowingly they're pressuring their entire populations to take part in what's essentially corporate surveillance. Um, ICCL flagged concerns about the transparency surrounding Google and Apple's involvement in the HSE app in person with the previous Minister for Health, Simon Harris, and also in a submission to the COVID-19 Oireachtas Committee, we called on the government to push for international companies such as Apple and Google to be completely transparent about their COVID tracking software, how their COVID tracking software works. We believe this is necessary, especially since the new Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, shortly after the HSE app was launched, said that Ireland may need to rely on Google and Apple for future health tech services. Um, in, terms of the public, in, the sorry, in terms of the public services card, um, if anyone really wishes to kind of get into the weeds, the weeds rather of the, the problems with this public services card, there's two, there are two documents really worth reading. They are the Data Protection Commissioner's report on the card, which was published last year, and a letter about the card, which the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and human rights Philip Alston wrote to the Irish government earlier this year. The first document, the DPC report, made three findings and they were that one, bodies other than the Department of Employment and Social Protection cannot insist that a person who does not already hold a public services card must obtain one. Um, the department, the second one was that the department has not been sufficiently transparent about its processing of data, how it is updated and shared with other public bodies. Um, the indefinite, and the third rather, is that the indefinite blanket retention by the Department of certain documentation and information collected during the registration process for the card, such as utility bills, contravenes the principle that personal data should not be kept longer than is necessary. In turn, the Data Protection Commissioner also ordered the destruction of, the, of this data related to 3.2 million cardholders. However, the state has rejected and appealed these findings and the matter is now before the circuit court while the Data Protection Commissioner is carrying out a separate investigation into the biometric element of the card. Um, as for Professor Alston's letter to the government, um, it concludes that the public services card discriminates against the poor and the marginalised who are most dependent on access to government assistance without a clear legal basis. His letter also details the history of the card over two decades, how its purpose and function has expanded and evolved over that time and how the current form of the PSC has followed an accumulation of very difficult to follow public service card related amendments to various acts with a very minimal, excuse me, debate of the implications of these changes in the Oireachtas. In the, data in the Data Protection Commissioner's report, for example, it noted that during its two year investigation of the card, the department published for the first time an informal consolidation of the social welfare legislation that underpins the safe registration process um, and the public services card. And that document runs just some 
561 pages with 2,410 footnotes relating to amendments and substitutions. Um, concerns about these very cumbersome and confusing legal changes were specifically raised by ICCL and Digital Rights Ireland during um, a meeting about the public services card uh, at, in a joint Oireachtas committee meeting back in February um, 2018. So following the changing nature of the public services card is no easy task, but I'll try to be concise. Um, the birth, because it really, the, the following kind of timeline, if you like, really shows um, how the mission creep, how mission creep really has um, has affected the public services card, and also it also um, speaks to the most recent um, debacle in our in our airports and ports. So the, the birth of the public services card really stretches back to 1996 when there were moves to digitise the welfare system. The then social services card was a plastic card with a magnetic strip and a signature signature strip. Um, in 1998, the Social Welfare Act introduced a public service card, singular, which had some details physically inscribed and on others electronically coded. During a debate about this bill, the then Minister for Social Community and Family Affairs, Dermot O'Hearn, Fianna Fáil, specifically said that the PSC singular is not and will not operate as an identity card. Um, in 2007, an important change was made through the Social Welfare and Pensions Act 2007, 2007, without meaningful legislative or public debate. Section 263 of the um, Social Welfare Consolidation Act 2005 was amended to allow the Minister to include a photo and the signature of the cardholder on the physical public services card and to include this information as well as additional information such as all former surnames of the cardholder's mother on the card electronically. In December 2009 the Department of Social Protection entered into a contract with a supplier at a fixed price of 19.7 million plus VAT to produce 3 million cards by the end of 2013. So in 2010 the Social Welfare and Pensions Act 2010 allowed for more info to be inscribed on the card physically and electronically. The 2010 Act also changed the name of the, changed the, name of the card to the Public Services Card, plural. Um, production of the card was really then kind of delayed until the second half of 2011, when it be, began to be, on a, be, be rolled out on a phased basis. Um, events such as the recession, the Troika loans, and the emphasis on austerity gave the, the, the PSE a new energy, if you like. Following the election of a new government in early 2011, and the then newly appointed Minister for Social Protection, Joan Burton, presented the Department for Social Protection Fraud Initiative 2011 to 2013. This included plans to um, enhance the technical and audit capacity of the department, including the rollout of the new public services card and increase the number of social welfare inspectors on the ground, which again harks back to most recent events. Um, it also mentioned that the PSC would incorporate identification features, including a biometric photograph and signature, thus making it harder for people to use false identities. By the end of 2011, there was around 4,000 public service cards um, produced in Ireland. By the end of 2012, there was around 7,000. In April 2012, the Social Welfare and Pensions Bill was introduced, and during a debate on that bill, the then Minister for Social Protection again, Joan Burton, announced that she would be proposing a change in the law. She told the Dáil on April 18th that welfare fraud was a serious crime. And she said that under the existing legislative provisions, there is no mandatory requirement for a person to allow for his or her photograph and signature to be captured and reproduced in electronic format for purposes of a PPSN 
allocation, public services card and claims for social welfare benefits. She went on to say, I will be proposing a change to provide for the, for the introduction of a new condition for any new claim for social welfare payment that the claimant must satisfy the department as to his or her identity, including allowing for electronic capture of photograph and signature. In the very next breath, again, just harking back to most recent events, she said, I am also strengthening the powers of social welfare inspectors to make inquiries in various circumstances at ports and airports. Um, on April 25th, while the bill was at the committee stage in the Dáil, the Minister introduced a range um, of amendments to the bill, totaling 23 pages. Um, and they included provisions related to the public services card. At the time, Fianna Fáil TD, Sean Fleming, actually complained at the outset of the debate that he and his Dáil colleagues only received the amendments at midnight the previous night, um, and other TDs also complained. The bill was passed the following day on April 26th, and it included several amendments regarding the public services card and identity authentication, authentication in terms of receiving social welfare payments. In June 2012, the public services card began to be rolled out on a nationwide basis, and by the end of 2012, um, there were 100,000 people had completed the safe registration process necessary for getting a card. Um, in the department's 2013 annual report, it announced it used um, facial image matching software to help detect and deter duplicate registrations. In its 2014 annual report, it clarified that this software had been in use since March 2013, and it explained that this facial image matching software carries out a search of a person's, <coughs> excuse me, captured photograph against existing photographs on the department's da database to ensure that the person isn't already registered for a PSC using a different PPS number. 2013 was also the year that the government um, broadened the scope of the public services card beyond the Department of Employment and Social Protection. Um, two years later, in 2015, it launched mygovid.ie, which allowed people to register for access to their department and other government online services, um, including an appointment to register for a PSE. And by the end of 2015, there were 1.7 million public services cards in circulation. In September 2016, the Office of the Controller and Auditor General re released its annual report for 2015 and said the PSE project failed to develop a business case when government took steps in 2004 and 2005 to roll it out. So essentially, the, the, the CNAG was saying that there was no proper cost-benefit analysis, including savings expected from reducing identity fraud via the card. Um, the CNAG also reported at that time that expenditure on the project was higher than planned. Um, in 2016, this is when the, the public services card became necessary for all first-time passport applicants under the age of 18 who were resident or are resident in Ireland to have a public services card. And it became a requirement for all applicants for a certificate of naturalization age 18 or over to have a card. Um, then in 2017, the Minister for Social Protection, Leo Racker, launched MyGovID and encouraged people to get a, a public services card since he said it was becoming ever more important as over time many government services in Ireland will require you to hold a public services card. Um, and then in May 2017 it was confirmed that anyone applying for a passport or driving license in the future would need a public services card. In May 2017 the Road Safety Authority also announced that from June 1st theory test candidates, candidates would need a public services card to book the theory test. 
So in August 2017, things began to change because stories started to emerge about difficulties that people encountered while assessing, while, um, yeah, while assessing welfare benefits and services related to the public services card. For example, Elaine Edwards then in the Irish Times wrote about a woman in her 70s whose non-contributory non pension had been stopped after she refused to register for the public services card. The department owed her 13,000 euros but refused to pay her, even though she, or she offered to identify herself by other means. Um, later that month, month, the Data Protection Commissioner issued a public statement on the controversy and said there was a pressing need for clear information to be given to the public regarding the mandatory use of the public services card for assessing public services. Um, she asked the department to publish a frequently asked questions section and this was published in October 2017. But in the same month, the Data Protection Commissioner launched a formal inquiry into the PSC. Um, and that's where we are today with her findings before the court. Um, so that's maybe not so concise summary of the, of the public services card and how it has expanded over um, the years to where it is today. But in terms of assessing whether a government initiative such as the public services card respects human rights, one question that must be asked is whether it's necessary and proportionate. It's a fact that um, reducing identity fraud in the welfare system has been a consistent reason put forward by the Irish government in respect of the public services card. Um, we can all remember the launch in April 2017 of the then Minister for Employment and Social Protection, Leo Vracker's Welfare Cheats, Cheat Us All campaign, in which um, essentially he called on people to be whistleblowers and to report to the authorities people whom they believed were so-called welfare cheats. In respect of this campaign, which saw ads placed online and print, on radio, on buses and on billboards, and the claim about combating um, identity fraud, a few figures are actually worth noting. It's based on the government's own statistics. Um, identity fraud represents only about 2% of total welfare fraud in Ireland. This equals about 13 million per year out of a total welfare budget of more than 20 billion. The public services card specifically has so far only led to 1.44 million in estimated fraud savings per year. So this figure really represents only a fraction of the yearly welfare budget. And then to, and to give that figure further context, um, one should consider that the total spend on the public services card project as of the end of 2019 was estimated to be around 68 million. So, um, and with the aforementioned court case ahead, this cost is only likely to rise. Um, so. That's great. Thanks very much <laughs> for that very thorough uh, run through. And <laughs> uh, you really took us through the, 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 whole, um, the whole history. So thanks very much for that. Um, so we're going to move now to um, questions and answers uh, for all panellists. We have a few questions here. Um, one is, um, in both Schrems 1 and Schrems 2, the CJEU uh, found that the EU US arrangements approved by the Commission were void of an issue. Is it fair to say that these decisions call into question all decisions by the European Commission in addition to adequacy? I don't know who, who would be best. I'll take that one. Connor, or Simon, thanks. Um, no, I don't think so. I think that the uh, Privacy Shield and the um, Safe Harbour before it were uh, an almost unique um, uh, decision from the EU that the standard adequacy decision system is extremely lengthy. I think it has taken Japan three years to reach the point where it was accepted on an adequacy, adequacy basis. Generally speaking, those adequacy decisions are uh, very involved. They involve the EU 
asking questions and the, uh, the government supplying extremely detailed answers in relation to the matching off of domestic legislation to the kind of protections that the EU anticipates should be there. Um, and it is really, uh, it really goes to show that the EU, EU-US data transfer uh, systems, the Privacy Shield and the Safe Harbour, were unlike those kinds of very rigorous adequacy decisions. And this question that um, William has uh, noted uh, on the, the chat that he would uh, like to answer, which is, should a controller ask processors about data transfers undertaken by sub-processors? Now I'm doing it. Uh, in a nutshell, effectively, yes. Uh, the reason being is the Data Protection Act 2018, the Irish one, and also GDPR, uh, put, a, put the responsibility on the data controller to basically do everything within the power to ensure the processor uh, is compliant with GDPR. And like with, uh, that was touched on earlier by Simon, that um, it, it's not good enough to go, okay, as the controller going, okay, it's the processor's problem, thanks very much, you know, you go off and do your thing. There is a certain amount of due diligence involved, and as part of that due diligence, you would look as to, okay, well, what exactly are you, as a sub-processor, acting on my behalf as a controller, what exactly are you doing with the data, what are you putting in place, what safeguards are in place, and uh, what are you going to do if there's a data breach, how will you, you know, protect data subject rights, how you notify me, etc., etc., etc. As part of that, um, you would have to look at, well, what are you going to do with the data as a data um, sub-processor? Who are you sending it with to? Who are you sharing it with? What safeguards they got in place, etc. Now, um, just as a matter of practicality, and I've, I've advised a few large organisations with this, especially with state contracts, where you might have an organ of the state entering into a contract with a sub-processor, and as part of their due diligence, like the HSC, Department of Health, whatever the, the state body is, as part of their data, um, the privacy impact assessment, on the, the data sub-processor, they will specifically ask, what are you as a sub-processor going to do with the data? Who are you sharing it with? What sub-processors, what sub-sub-processors are there in some cases? What safeguards are in place? What are their privacy policies? So you'll basically, as a, as a sub-processor, you could end up giving the data controller a massive, big uh, volume of, well, here's are my sub-sub-processor policies. Here's my privacy impact assessment sub-processor. Here's my blah, blah, blah. So you basically give them everything. But the point being for this is technically, yes. Why? Well, effectively, it's up to you uh, under GDPR and Data Protection Act uh, to show compliance. It puts an onus on you as, as a controller for the acts or negligence of a sub-processor or processor under circumstances. And it's up to you to prove compliance with the principles of data protection, as well as those applying to the, the sub-processor under Article 5.2. Perfect. Thanks very much, William. Uh, a question that might be best for Paul uh, to answer because it's about um, the social media giant uh, TikTok, which is that uh, Donald Trump has proposed banning TikTok from the United States because of data protection and privacy concerns. So do you think that's a, a legitimate concern and is that a reasonable response? Well, firstly, I couldn't believe my luck when I heard that TikTok were coming to Ireland. I mean, I've already got a great cottage industry with Facebook and Twitter and the others. So great news for the legal profession. Um, so, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, all these organizations are the same. We've got to try and manage a scenario where they really all are in the same boat. They're all coming from the same place. 
and they will all do what they can, one, to gather as much data as they possibly uh, can achieve legally or whatever, uh, and secondly, to avoid responsibility as much as they possibly can. Uh, the fact that uh, TikTok have decided to headquarter them themselves or their data uh, in, in Ireland uh, means at least that they're submitting to Irish and also obviously European uh, data privacy and defamation laws. So I think that's good news. As far as President Trump's input on it, I mean, I don't know, that was his opinion a couple of days ago. We need to just check it's still the same opinion today. So I wouldn't uh, be putting maybe too much in store at that end. And the next question is for Simon and Olga, um, which is many critics of the data protection regime in Ireland have suggested that the Data Protection Commission uh, does not have the resources to meaningly um, mean, meaningfully uh, fulfill that, that regulatory role. So do you think that the DPC has the will, uh, but not the resources, or is it lacking both? Well, it doesn't matter if it has the will, if it doesn't have the resources. And we know that it doesn't even have the resources it thinks it ought to have, whether those are sufficient from a, on a global scale. And I think the real difficulty here is that the funding model for this regulatory system just isn't the appropriate funding model. Because what we have is a funding model which relies upon the annual budget of the government to fund this regulation. Whereas what we really ought to be having is a funding model which relies on the income of the um, or turnover of the companies that are being regulated. This is a model that the UK uses to fund insurance regulation. It's a levy. And it's a model that it's being discussed would be used as part of the new um, social media commissioner model, which I'm not in favour of for lots of reasons. But, the, but I am in favour of the idea that if we have a, um, uh, an industry which is uh, m making its home in Ireland, and Ireland then, as a result, has the burden of regulating for maybe three billion people uh, worldwide, uh, it really is legitimate for Ireland to say, well, I think that this needs to be funded properly, but in order to do that, we need more than just the resources of the Irish state. We need the industry to recognise the value of well-funded regulation in terms of building up uh, trust and um, and, and, and acceptance that Ireland is a, a, a place where you can go to to get these complaints heard, heard quickly, dealt with quickly, but also dealt with fairly and uh, consistently. That's why the insurance industry in the UK doesn't complain about the, uh, the levy, because they want good regulation. Good regulation builds trust. Trust is absolutely necessary for non-tangible items like insurance, but it's equally critical, as we saw after the Shrems uh, 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 case and after the uh, the Snowden revelations, it's critical for the uh, tech giants as well. They must have a credible regulatory system to rely upon. And so I think it's reasonable that the Irish government would say, I think if we're going to produce that credible regulation uh, regulatory structure, well, we'd like somebody to put their hands in their pocket to help fund it. And uh, I'll go to your views on, on the matter. Um, well, I would I'd echo, I'd echo all that Simon has said, um, and and yeah, absolutely. Like the DPC has to be, as, as Simon said at the beginning, um, it just it, it was it has to be funded in order to carry out its work. Um, and given the Shrems two judgment, its work has obviously, will obviously increase multiple fold. So um, so yeah, it will, it'll have to be better resourced. 
a question that came in at the start for Simon. If an adequacy decision is not given, for example, if the UK, uh, in the event of a no deal on data transfers at the end of the year, um, does this not mean, in effect, that the Commission does not deem the domestic legislative framework up to scratch? And if the framework, which is out of control of the processor based in the United Kingdom, is not adequate, does this not, in effect, render the SCC invalid as irrespective as to what is agreed in the SCC domestic law will trump whatever is agreed between those parties? I think there's two steps there. One, will the UK get an adequacy decision? I think by now we should work on the assumption it will not. Um, and so the next, let's, let's step straight past that and say, does that mean all SCCs are invalid with the UK? No, that's not an automatic outcome. Because after all, SCCs could be valid with any country around the world if the country has an, an acceptable um, domestic legislative uh, framework into which that can be applied. However, what we do know is that the UK has specifically got pieces of legislation that, um, for example, the uh, European Parliament's rapporteur on this, um, uh, his name escapes me just this minute, has already said that the, the RIPA Act, the RIPA Act, um, is not compatible uh, with the uh, with the the, pr the principles of the the Charter of Fundamental Rights, and that didn't matter because it fell outside the purview of the EU and the courts while the UK was a member. But once the UK has departed and the transition period is over, then that special carve out will cease, and all those laws in terms of surveillance and oversight and so on. Uh, will suddenly become exactly as difficult for the UK as they are for the US. And the, if the US has run into difficulties with its access to, um, to, to data, and they, that access to data system is shared with the UK through the Five Eyes program, I think we should also presume and work on the presumption that the UK is going to have great difficulty not just getting to the adequacy decision. I think we've, that ship has sailed. But rather, we're going to have to work on the assumption that now, after the Schrems 2 decision, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for the UK to receive EU data on any of the usual legal bases. So previously, we might have been planning, and I have to say, I was planning with clients, that we would be traveling on a standard contractual clauses with the UK, uh, and that would be the legal basis that we would uh, allow that data to, to travel. Now it's very difficult to see how that's going to be at least reliably um, uh, going to go ahead. And so I would say that if everybody is looking at their, their data transfers, which they're going to have to do as part of the Schrems 2 compliance step, one of the things to do is to recognize if we have transfers going to the UK, we have to prepare for the day where those transfers either do not happen anymore and we move, or in the alternative, that we have made sure that we have some legal basis for them on the, uh, on the presumption that there isn't going to be a, uh, a decision that standard contractual clauses can apply. Thanks very much, Simon. Um, William, um, a question has come in for you about uh, the position. If someone takes payment from your account without your consent, I want you to comment on that. Well, generally, taking money from bank accounts without consent is a bad thing. So, <laughs> uh, generally, yes. However, I'm assuming it's not just a case of somebody wandering in taking money of a bank account. I'm assuming it's some sort of direct debit or, or mandate or something like that. Um, generally speaking, um, it just purely on the facts, if someone was to waltz in or set up a standing order direct debit without your consent, take money out of your account, yes, that is a breach of GDPR. Um, 
it would be a breach of GDPR if there was a direct debit standing order mandate in place and you redacted it. Well, arguably, yes, there is. Now, would you go after them via GDPR? Well, there'd be an easier way of doing that by going to the bank, direct debit instructions, banking, central bank has got laws in place for banking regulations, relations to direct debit mandates, all that type of stuff. So I, if I wouldn't go legal on that unless I exhausted everything with my bank first. Uh, in relation to direct debit mandates, standing order mandates, all that type of stuff. But then if for whatever reason that was not resolved by the bank, you've got the option of going to the financial regulator, but you've also got the option of going to the Data Protection Commission. Or if you want to, although I wouldn't recommend it, uh, initiating legal proceedings uh, for a data protection action. Um, depending on the facts of the case would depend on how serious it is and your, your level of quantum, your quantum of damages. Um, because not only if somebody takes money out of your account, not only would you have, I'm assuming, the non-material damage of the stress, hassle, annoyance of it all, we've also got material damage. Well, how much was taken? 200 quid. Well, there's 200 quid material damage. Um, so yes, in a nutshell, yes, you have a data protection action there, but it mightn't be the best way of going around it. It would be better off resolving it probably through uh, the bank, current banking legislation, um, directive and mandate, that type of thing. And then as a last resort, you could look at going to the financial ombudsman or and or data protection commissioner. And this actually raises an interesting point. I, I've been in cases where you go to the financial ombudsman and they go, oh, it's a data protection commissioner's issue. You go to the data protection commission, they go, oh, it's the financial ombudsman. Um, so you could, this actually touches upon a really interesting area of law where you actually fall between the gaps of the two commissioners and you have to take legal action. Um, so, you know, depending on the case, um, it could result in you falling outside of both of them. Uh, but I think in this particular case, specifically with direct debit or standing orders, financial ombudsman probably best to sort of take the data protection action. And William, in, in the last few years that have passed since the implementation of the of the GPR, what what are the major gaps that have appeared? And do you expect that in the next few years we're going to see any major revisions to sort of deal with those gaps? I mean, perhaps even what you've mentioned there between the gaps between commissioners might be part of that. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a huge problem with um, as soon as you get into data protection issues on current causes of action, it's a mess. Um, I've been before the Workplace Relations Commission, which, as you know, is all data protection, sorry, is all uh, employment matters. Um, and they deal with obviously like structural dismissal, uh, unfair dismissal, that type of thing. Now, as part of, we'll say, bullying harassment in the workplace, as part of events leading up to a constructive or unfair dismissal, you would invariably get into, well, what happened to the workplace? Was there an investigation of some description? And as part of that investigation in the workplace, on second, you're processing an employee's personal data. Therefore, all these data protection issues apply, data protection policies, GDPR, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in my experience, and this is my experience, it's not case law, my experience is that the, the WRC accepts that non-compliance with data protection policies in the workplace is not technically a GDPR issue for the workplace relations, but they do accept it's relevant in events leading up to uh, an unfair dismissal or obstructive dismissal, and also relevant as to whether or not um, a, a grievance procedure or disciplinary procedure was done in due, was followed due process. In other words, if you breach GDPR in the investigation process or disciplinary process, well, then they weren't done in accordance with due process, and therefore the redundancy, sorry, the the dismissal um, is is an unfair dismissal is unfair. So that's one area. Second area is um, PIs. You know, if there's a private, if there's a um, 
public injuries case, sorry, private injuries case, personal injuries case, sorry, there's so many things going on. Personal injuries case, um, we'll say slip and fall in Tesco's, hypothetically, okay? Well, obviously Tesco's or whatever company it is, is going to investigate. They're going to have, uh, an empl- they're going to have uh, some sort of investigation. They're going to check on site with staff who is doing it. So there's an issue between employer staff, data protection, uh, between the organization and the customer, data protection concerns. They're going to have to investigate, use CCTV footage. And this is where it gets really interesting. And this is the, the area that isn't litigated at the moment. What happens when you send that information to your solicitor? Wait, hold on a second. Are we getting into solicitors now? Follow the chain of evidence. Follow the chain of data protection. This is the key thing with data protection actions. As far as I'm concerned, they're equivalent to uh, evidence in criminal cases. Where did it come from? What did you do with it? Who did you share it with? Your lawful basis for doing it. Follow the chain. And with those type of cases where slip and fall in Tesco's, and again, I'm not, I hope nobody here works for Tesco's, uh, in a big giant supermarket, well, they refer that to the solicitor. Do they have some sort of data process agreement between their solicitor and the organization. Does, your, does the solicitor then have, an organiz- have one between that and their bars? Do they have that with their insurance company? And this is where there's going to be litigation over the next 10 years. Uh, because if you have some sort of claim where somebody with a very serious accident, we say who's been suffering for 10 years, um, spinal injury, that type of thing, the claim is worth massive and it's worthwhile pursuing any gap in the data protection chain of evidence, this is where it's going to go. I had one very recently where um, insurance company um, actually put data, put private investigators on the client. Now, they didn't have data processing policies, procedures in place. They didn't have a data processing agreement between the insurance company and the investigators. At the time, and this is for GDPR, the, the private investigators had to be registered with the data protection commissioner because they were processing special categories of personal data. Now, that no longer applies to private investigators, but it did at the time, you had to be registered as a data processor, but they hadn't done all that. So basically everything they had, following somebody around with a camera, taking pictures out in public, was all illegally obtained. The whole thing collapsed. Now, we never got to court, that, that case settled, but the point being, had that gone to full trial, and this hasn't been tried yet, is there the, the fruit of the poison tree argument here? Is there, I have this evidence, it's uh, illegally obtained under GDPR. Can I use it in civil cases? Can I use it for, for breach of my constitutional rights at a civil matter? Not criminal, but for civil. This area, I think, will be explored over the next five, 10 years. So it's not just where did you get the evidence or where did you get the, the personal data? It's also following the chain. Did the solicitor have a place in, in did the barrister, did everything? So I think the Data Protection Commission at some stage is going to turn their gaze onto the legal profession. Um, I've got mine sorted out, by the way. I'm just putting it out there. Uh, <laughs> I already had a client ask me about that very early on, so I, that's all sorted. But you get the point. It's, it's a gap there. And as lawyers, we are taught and we practice in looking for the gaps, making them, uh, you know, sticking the knife in, twisting and making the whole thing collapse. And if you can get the chain of evidence, causation, whatever it is, you break the chain, you've got, there's your case, there's your defense, there's your cause of action. So I think it's going to be that next i think uh, we're going to be looking at the legal profession but i also think it's going to be a um a, a difficult day when that happens but i think it's coming so i think that's one area, big area one big gap where it's going to be coming down the line i'd be interested just to to see what what your view is on on that same question as well but gaps have emerged in the in the legislation and on where you see things going in the next few years I think you should think about the Data Protection Commission as an and 
not an or. So if it is the case that the client is taking uh, action uh, before the, the courts, that isn't to say that it preempts the DPC uh, doing an investigation in relation to a data protection angle in that action. Um, I certainly, I, I was listening to William. I'm, uh, one of the things that I, I remember saying to a client once was that he had spent the best ever six euros 35 of his life when um, as a result of a well-timed and uh, well-placed data protection, data subject access request, a 295,000 euro case settled because uh, it turned out that the uh, other side had been keeping very assiduous records of exactly what it is had happened to the person in their workplace, uh, sufficient that it was enough to end the, uh, end the case. And they weren't necessarily uh, at idem with the defense that had been produced. One of the interesting things is that um, your data protection request can go in directly to a party while you're uh, dealing with the uh, represented uh, body on the other side. So, for example, you are obliged in respect of litigation to uh, uh, deal with your opposite number as a solicitor uh, when, they are, when the person is represented, and that's appropriate and correct. But that solicitor will not have instructions necessarily in relation to a data protection issue, which is a separate matter. And so, therefore, you can find yourself dealing with the solicitor on one hand uh, who is running litigation and, uh, and a data protection officer or indeed not a data protection officer but just a person who's been given the job inside the organization and frequently the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing and you can find if ever there are gaps that's one of the most uh, interesting places for gaps to appear in litigation because you can find that the two stories told internally and externally may not necessarily overlap 100 percent so i mean I, I certainly have seen litigation being determined by data protection issues. Whether or not they've been determined on the data protection point is really secondary. Uh, it's that the usage and awareness of that data protection element has made all the difference in relation to very significant litigation that I've been involved in. So, I mean, yes, that definitely is the case. Are, are there gaps? I have to say it would be impossible not to go through a, a, an entire webinar without saying that the speed of the investigatory process from the Data Protection Commission is glacial. It, you can put in the complaint and you can wait and you can keep waiting. I had a, um, a complaint go in and I think it was three years before it was finally dealt with. Um, another one I think was even longer uh, if memory serves, but there are others that are longer again I know of. There's, a, there's almost a running total now as to who's gonna have the longest. This is really, I feel in relation to, if we look at the, the, the United Nations, the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission has produced a document and one of the documents that it will produce, one of the, the basis on which it will uh, accept complaints is that uh, uh, not, uh, previously it was considered that you had to go to um, every one of the levels of a domestic uh, 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 system before you were out, but you had to exhaust your, your, your options. Now they will accept that you've exhausted your options if it's already taken you up to three years to go through the first option. It's taken for granted that, look, it's unreasonable to keep you uh, waiting through further ones for years after that. I think that's a real challenge because suddenly it leaves Ireland open to international complaints in relation to human rights uh, in a manner which it has not necessarily been aware of up until now because there's now a ticking deadline 
where the UN has decided that if it takes more than three, certainly four years, to go through the initial steps, that you won't be required to go through those appeals that we've been used to seeing a requirement of in, for example, the UN, um, I beg your pardon, the ECHR cases, the, the, the trips to Strasbourg. So, 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 so we're seeing these kinds of uh, raising of the bar internationally as to what is and isn't acceptable. And I think we're going to have to see an acceptance and a kind of an integration of that from the Irish state, including a resourcing um, of the, uh, the, the DPC to ensure that these kinds of extremely um, lengthy processes can be um, telescoped down into something reasonable. And this was one of the complaints that Mr. Shrems has had, uh, that he's still waiting for uh, the final decisions in relation to his complaints that were made, I think, nearly 10 years ago now. Um, and that really is difficult to look in the face and say that's an acceptable and functional um, uh, uh, regulatory system. Thanks, Simon. We have um, an open question here, which is, um, do you think that we could end up with a similar model to the APAC model with an external third-party certification system rather than self-certification? I'm going to go and Google APAC to find out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, look, the, the concept of, of the third-party certification, it... it, it there are there is a provision inside the GDPR for codes of conduct, um, and that's and and you can sign up to a code of conduct, and the code of conduct can be approved by a data protection authority. Um, there are no relevant codes of conduct that are, are effective here in in Ireland that I know of that have been approved yet. There are one or two of them that have been approved uh, on the continent by I think the Belgian data protection authority. Uh, I, I still see that this is going to be. Self-certification sounds like it, there are no teeth, but what there actually is, is it's consequences. And um, by self-certifying, you're taking on all of those consequences yourself. I can see that being uh, the, the, the shape that the, uh, the, the regulators and the courts would like to keep things going in. Uh, a question for Paul, in terms of, of defamation, you spoke briefly earlier about you know, that distinction between platform and, and publisher. Is that, does that remain a defensible position if the defamatory statement is actually featuring in, in you know, a trending comment or a trending tweet where the actual algorithm of the, of the platform is the one that's suggesting to the, to the user the, the defamatory statement? Well, first of all, I don't think it's a sustainable argument uh, full stop, Andrew. I mean, this has just mm. been traditionally the one that's been run out. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd uh, for Facebook and Twitter to still stand by this to try and argue that they're a platform where they have been taking proactive steps to decide who should be suspended from their platform, what speech should be allowed. Uh, you know, they are, they are actually acting as their own uh, jury as well as a judge, which have been from the outset. They've appointed their own oversight board, which effectively is their jury. They've appointed the, the, the 20 members. They've decided who they're going to appoint and there are controversial appointments in there. So how can they say they're just merely a platform, merely a facilitator, whenever they are actually arbitrating what speech is out there, what is disseminated, how it's edited? It's just absurd. Uh, but as I say, I think it's, it's producing a major uh, focus for lawyers going forward, I mean, this is going to be the battleground of the next 24 months. I think if it hadn't been for lockdown in the Irish courts, 
uh, we would have had a decision before now that hopefully would have would have put this to bed uh, once and for all. But as I say, I do I do have to admire the social media giants that they have they are so uh, thick skinned and they've got such a crocodile back that they can continue to try and put this argument forward. You know, given what's been happening out there. And then our final question, which is for all panelists, so I might um, get you all to comment on it, maybe in the order which you spoke, um, which is that there are signs that the Chinese government is moving towards a stricter national personal personal data uh, protection regime, uh, and crudely put, that's more similar to the EU approach than the US approach. So what could that mean on a global basis? So I might ask Simon perhaps to comment first. Um. So there are three large models for data protection, China, the United States, and the EU. And by dint of the fact that the EU is the richest, largest market in the world, um, it has had quite a influence over which of these models is attractive. So data protection as a concept is, um, is adopted by countries who wish to trade more readily with the EU and I think we're up to 108 countries so far, have some form of data protection law on the books. The United States doesn't recognize data protection as distinct from privacy as a, uh, as a human right. And China has an entirely other uh, uh, set of uh, circumstances. Uh, I think we're going to end up with a, a bipolar uh, outcome. And I think what's going to happen is that the United States will eventually um, come around to uh, the uh, the EU position, but it won't come from the federal level. It will come up from the state level, and we're seeing the start of that here in the um, Californian uh, new laws, which are currently taking effect and which are already being discussed for being superseded with more strict laws, bringing them closer to the uh, the data protection sort of concept that the EU has adopted. So, uh, it really, the question is which of these is going to win out. And uh, uh, I, I think I'd probably say the old, um, the old uh, journalistic cliche of time will tell. But I think in the end, it's going to be the EU's position. Thanks, Simon. William, your thoughts? Um, I think this is, sounds like an essay question. Someone has got to do an assignment at very short notice and is that looking for answers. Uh, <laughs> it's very specific. It's something I could ask my students. Okay. Um, I'm of the view that uh, obviously I, I'm a big supporter of the, of the European model, uh, primarily because it's based on fundamental freedoms and rights of individuals and as a source of law, uh, without getting into whole jurisprudence behind it, but as a source of law, the ECHR and um, the European conventions are very focused on the individual rights of freedoms. I mean, th that's the source of it all. Um, and that's the, the ethos behind it, for want of a better phrase. So I would be focused on that side of it, on the rights of freedoms of the individuals, whereas the US wouldn't be as stringent and, and the Chinese regime um, has mixed background on human rights. So. I would be in favour of the European level, primarily because of the, the fundamental principles of individual, individual rights and freedoms, that, that is, is systemic throughout the entire thing, from its conception right through to GDPR implementation and um, strengthening at a local level of each 
each member state because to some extent obviously uh, regulation applies automatically but to some extent uh, most member states have put in some form of more stringent regime in local legislation for example the Irish Data Protection Act uh, solidifies some elements of it and creates individual uh, reporting criteria on how to actually do things in Ireland. So an, an Irish firm can report the Irish Data Protection Commission how to do things. And also by, it also strengthens cross-border um, issues working with the National Supervisory Authority, the National Special Commissioner, to other supervisory authorities across Europe. And again, it's all focused back on the human rights of the individual. Um, is this processing of this personal data in accordance with it? Obviously GDPR and behind that, the ethos behind it. We have, I see this kind of going into kind of similar to the financial model where you comply or, or explain, where for whatever reason you're not complying, you have to explain it to the regulators or the commissioner's satisfaction. And if they're satisfied with that, well, that's fine. If not, well, then you could be looking at a prosecution or action of some description. Um, again, I'm of the European model simply because it's more fundamental and focused on European individual human rights than we'll say the other two models. Perfect, thanks William. Uh, I hope that answers the essay question. <laughs> Paul, uh, do you have any particular thoughts? Uh, well, just, I mean, I think data legislation is becoming more and more uh, a political weapon, uh, you know, for control. I don't see any prospect of a common international policy. Uh, you know, the, the false information and data has become the modern day hand grenade. I mean, more and more we are having to deal with situations where false information has been fed to certain sections of the media. And that is done by state control, uh, individuals who have got grudges, because and people have learned very quickly that, for instance, US sanctions are based almost exclusively on what is written in the media. You know, if you look at the US Treasury sanctions, uh, schedule it quotes from various media reports so you've got different uh, political opponents pumping in false data false information into news outlets uh, that's published and then that's used not only by the uh, u.s treasury u.s sanctions people but also by the banks you can actually have somebody's bank account suspended by one false media report and the results can be devastating that's the battleground. It's the third world war we're living in at the moment, and that's going to be the battle for the future, for the near future. Thanks, Paul. And uh, Olga, your thoughts? I'm, Andrew, I'm very sorry, but I'm unfamiliar with the, um, the, the, the change in the Chinese law. So if you'd rather. That's, if you don't, that's <laughs> fine. Apologies. Perfect. Thanks very much. So uh, thanks to all panelists for um, their, their very interesting uh, discussion today. I'd be, um, I would just like to invite all attendees to uh, complete that post-webinar survey and um, you can all check out um, Friday's uh, newsletter for a link to a recording of this if, if you want to watch it again or to show it to anyone else um, and there will also be a written report in uh, Friday's newsletter. So thanks uh, all for tuning in and I hope you all have a good evening. Thank you. Okay. Thank you Andrew. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you.